Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we ask, do higher welfare benefits lead to higher immigration? My name is Alan Rennick and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Immigration is back near the top of the political agenda here in the UK and elsewhere. The UK government's so-called Stop the Boats bill, which targets those who cross the channel in search of asylum, is one rather extreme manifestation of the idea that you can stop unwanted migration by making it unattractive. A wider expression of the same view is the concept of benefit tourism, the idea that migrants are more likely to come if welfare benefits are higher and that you can therefore reduce immigration by keeping benefits low. Now, there are clearly big questions to ask about whether such ideas are morally defensible, but it's also important to ask whether they even work on their own terms. And new research carried out here at UCL casts important doubt on that. One co-author of that research is Dr. Moritz Marbach, who is Associate Professor in Data Science and Public Policy in the UCL Department of Political Science. And I'm delighted that Moritz joins me now. Moritz, welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics. And let's make sure at the start that we're clear on just what we're talking about here. So throughout the article, you refer to the concept of the welfare magnet hypothesis. Could you explain just what that is? Sure. Um, thanks for having me, Alan. Uh, so the, the welfare magnet hypothesis is sort of this old idea that, you know, like you, you basically already described a little bit in that immigrants go where they get the most benefits. That idea comes from sort of the 50s from, from a paper by, by Charles Thibu that, that was really not about immigration at all, like not like about international immigration, but more about in general, like how people choose their place of residence. So in this paper, like he, he asked basically to what extent and, and how people make uh, this trade off between on the one hand, getting a lot of public goods and public services, and then paying also the taxes to, to pay for these types of goods. And, and so one of the key ideas that comes out of this paper is that sort of like, uh, people will vote with their feet and they will go where they get sort of the best uh, ratio or the, the sort of the best trade off, depending on their preferences between like uh, many public goods, many public services, but then also like the, the level of taxes that they are comfortable paying. And so scholars of migration and particularly like like economists like George Borjas, they sort of took this idea and, and argue that when immigrants arrive in, in a new place, they tend to be very almost by definition, they are less rooted, right? Like they have few social networks, they have few like uh, networks uh, in, into the labor market. And because of that, their sort of relocation costs tend to be relatively low as compared to those that are more rooted in a place. And because of that, we might expect that immigrants are more engaged in this type of like behavior, optimizing, finding sort of the best place on getting the, the, the public goods, the public services. And that, you know, like comes in with sort of this idea that that after arrival, immigrants tend to be economically relatively vulnerable and also because of that tend to be more needy in terms of the amount of like welfare assistance they need. 
Um, so, so this this idea is is you know like fairly as I already said it, like fairly old in the literature, but like so the, the empirical evidence for for this hypothesis has been rather mixed. So in in many of these studies, in, in many studies, like we observe a correlation between. Uh, the concentration of immigrants and the generosity of the welfare state locally. Many of these studies, they look at the United States and they observe that like immigrants tend to go to California, which happens to be a state that is relative in comparison to other states, relatively generous in terms of like the, the welfare that you can receive. Um, but of course, like, you know, like then California is also very prosperous economically. There are many economic opportunities, especially for immigrants. And so it's really hard to sort of conclude or to delineate, do immigrants go there because of the generosity of the welfare state? Or is it because that they go there in search for economic opportunities? And so the literature is relatively mixed in terms of the evidence, whether or not like immigrants engage in particular in this type of behavior that, that Charles uh, Thibault uh, uh, describes. And, and much of it has really to do with sort of a lack of data. And before we get into the data that you introduce into this, just to clarify the theory in my own mind. So you started off there with the work of Charles Thibault back in the 1950s, which, as you said, was very broad work, uh, not focused just on immigration and also not focused Absolutely. just on benefits. So the idea there was that people are looking at all of the various public services that are available and at taxes. So, I mean, it's intriguing that the literature on immigration seems to focus very particularly on levels of benefits rather than all of the other stuff. Is, is that just because there's an idea that somehow immigrants are particularly affected by benefits levels and all of the other stuff is a bit less important? And why does that shift happen? Yeah, so, so that's interesting. Um, so like, you're absolutely right in your observation that sort of like Charles Thibault's ideas were much broader and, and they cover like all types of like public goods and public services. But then sort of what, what, what scholars of, of migration and international migration in particular sort of like took from that is sort of that very much this focus on the welfare state and sort of like uh, welfare payments. And I don't know how that happened in particular, why this sort of like uh, fo focus on, on this particular type. But I think, you know, like much of it might also be like just data availability because measuring sort of like public good provisions locally and public service uh, provision locally is often relatively hard. And one of the things that we to some degree may have is the amount of money spent on welfare. I think that's sort of like where, where sort of can see why this might have happened in a literature. But like it's, it's definitely a gap. Like I think, you know, like there's very little research and other types of uh, public good and to what public goods and to what extent they are important in the in the immigration calculus. There's always more research to be done. So let's um, focus in on the paper that you've done. And here you focus on the case of Switzerland. And I guess you're doing that partly because Switzerland does help you overcome some of these data availability issues. There's just a ton of really good data that you can use in Switzerland. Is, is that fair? Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. That's that's one of the big motivations. Um, so like in, in the case of Switzerland, we have access to administrative data collected by the by the government to administer the social benefits system, we have data um, that basically covers everyone. So we, we know like uh, how much you received. If you're on welfare in Switzerland, we know how much you receive your demographics and, and all of that. So like we, we know a lot about like those receiving welfare in, in, in Switzerland. And then we studied the period of 2005 to 2015, because this is sort of like where the data has been available, made, made been available by the, uh, by the Swiss government. 
And so like data availability is certainly like one important part of the motivation in particular because much of, and that's what I already alluded to earlier, much of the literature really only has aggregate data. Um, and so like uh, one of the, the, the key innovations of this paper is that we have individual level panel data. So we observe people uh, over t a 10 year period, not only in terms of like how they, uh, what types of benefits they receive and how much in particular, but also like how they move across Switzerland, which is obviously important to answer this question about whether or not there is this kind of uh, benefit tourism um, that you described earlier. And so the, uh, the second motivation is that we believe that Switzerland is actually a good case to, to, to look into this. Um, in many ways, we think of Switzerland as sort of the most likely case to observe the type of uh, behavior that, that the welfare magnet hypothesis uh, stipulates. And one reason, or like there, there are basically three reasons. Uh, the first reason is that Switzerland is relatively small, meaning that like there is uh, short distances and so relocation costs uh, are co comparable speaking, should be a little smaller relative to larger countries. We have a large immigrant population, so like two million or so uh, um, immigrants live in, in, in Switzerland. So there's about like a quarter of the entire population in the country. And then most importantly, probably, there is just a huge variety in benefit levels across the country. So we um, benefit, the, the, the benefit system basically is, is, is completely in the hands, or largely in the hands of the municipalities. So there are about like 2,000 or so municipalities across Switzerland, and they uh, have uh, the discretion to set their own benefit levels. And so that means that there, there's just huge variation uh, across the country. Um, so like, on average, we uh, you have about like a social welfare level of like 1,000 or 300 or so Swiss francs, which you know like depending on the exchange rate that you that you use is is about 1,100 or so pounds. Um, that's that's the average, but then there is variation that it goes like below 750 francs to up to twice the average amount that you get in, in some municipalities. And so that that variation is very useful because it means that there the incentives to engage in in sort of welfare migration, right, are actually relatively huge um, because of these large differences between municipalities. So what you're looking at is how people move around within Switzerland, essentially. And you're looking that, at whether correct. it's the case that, yeah. So you're looking at whether immigrants to Switzerland are moving around in Switzerland in a way that looks like they're moving because they're going towards higher benefits in particular parts of Switzerland. Is that That's there's, correct. There's, there's, do you want to just tell us a little bit more about exactly what kinds of data you've got that allow you to examine that? Right. So, so what we do is we, we're looking at changes in benefit rates. So over this like 10 year period, um, municipalities started to transition into what is called the school standard. So because of that, that variation in benefits levels across Switzerland, the, the national government in support with a non-government organization that's called schools to align benefit levels. So there is this idea that, you know, like there, there should be some harmonization and sort of like, you know, like more, more similar benefit rates across the board. And so over the last couple of almost like two decades now, municipalities 
start to transition into this common standard. And that process is largely due to cantonal legislation. So cantons are, you can think of them as like states in the United States. So they sit in between the national government and the municipality level. And so these, these cantons, they start to make this SCO standard um, compulsory at, at different points in time during our study period. And some, interestingly enough, then also transition out of that standard because they figure that they, they, they don't, uh, you know, they figure it's not useful for them to, to be on that standard. So there's lots of variation in, then, in the municipality benefit rate that is actually induced by canton legislation and this like movement to transition to a more harmonized benefit system. And so these changes are uh, what we are looking at. So we are looking at how immigrants react to changes in uh, municipality level welfare benefit, changes in, in the welfare benefit level uh, in a municipality. And uh, we, we look at, so we, we do a, a couple of analysis. Um, one of them is that, that we look at like to what extent are people moving away from places that lower benefit? Because like, you know, like some are, some municipalities are way above the school standard that's getting introduced by this cantonal legislation. That means that like when they like transition into that standards, they need to lower the benefit level, right? And so the question is then, does this lowering of the benefit makes people leave? Are they more likely to leave, right? And so what we find is that there's no effect on immigrants. So we don't see that like once the municipality lower benefits, more people are leaving these places. Mm. Uh, among the immigrant population. We do see that uh, actually citizens, there is a little bit of, a, of, a, of an effect for citizens. So in places with lower, lowering benefits, we do see that like some citizens start to move out, but like among the, the, the immigrants, the effect is, is really muted. Similar, we also don't see that, you know, like more, we, we don't see like pronounced effects from like immigrants moving to places that increase the benefit rate, right? So when places like in, uh, have to increase the benefit rate because they transition into the standards, we don't see that in these places like more people, uh, more immigrants move to, to, to these types of municipalities. And the last part of the analysis is sort of that we like see to what extent if, if people do move, so if, if immigrants on welfare move, do they um, tend to get more money after after moving, right? Like, do they, do they realize the potential gains that they could get by moving? And so what we see is that after a move, on average, immigrants tend to, to get about like 22 Swiss francs more as compared to before the move. This compares to about like 15 or so Swiss francs uh, for citizens. So this is monthly, um, so, you know, like, again, like depending on the exchange rate you're, you're using, we are looking at about a, a little less than maybe like 20 pounds or so for immigrants more per month after they relocate. And this is sort of like a really small effect if you think about sort of this huge variation in Switzerland. So like, you know, like if we, if we, if we not only looking at the extremes, but like even like looking at municipalities that, you know, like are about like as generous as the 80% of the most generous benefits and compare that to the to the bottom 20%, then like that, that sort of discrepancy amounts to like about like 150 or so uh, Swiss francs. So meaning if 
immigrants where to engage in this in this type of welfare migration, which they really sought to optimize the the amount of welfare they receive, then you know like they could easily make like one hundred or fifty or so Swiss francs per month by moving from like a very low paying municipalities to one of the the high paying municipalities. But in what we see is that you know like it amounts to to less than than twenty two or so Swiss francs on average. So the big question here is. Do immigrants, in fact, move towards higher welfare benefits? And the answer that you're giving is, well, largely no. Yeah, I mean, like uh, when it comes to the actual propensity to move, it's it's really like there's like you get like some small effects uh, if you in, in some of our statistical specifications we get some small effects, but they're so tiny that you know like it amounts to like one additional immigrants per ten thousand or so capita. So like it's really that the the substantive effects that we can find in our data, which is relatively large, which means that we can actually find very small effects, but in substantive terms these effects are so minor that it's negligible. And then, of course, like when it comes to the actual payouts in terms of like the additional amount received by relocating, again, they are so low and they are like, it doesn't look like that the idea of like that the, that the amount of, of social welfare you can get in a place is an important part of the migration calculus that, that immigrants do when they decide and where to relocate within Switzerland. What is going on then? Was Charles Tibu just wrong? Are people just kind of randomly moving around the country without any order? Or is there something else that is actually shaping their movements around the country? Yeah, of course not. I mean, like people don't move randomly. Uh, so like one of the, the best predictors is uh, uh, co-ethnic networks. Um, so like we in our data, which is like uh, immigrants and citizens on welfare, we see that one of the best predictors is that they move to places in, when it, in which they have like many co-ethnics and in which housing costs are low. Um, so those are like the two most important predictors that we can find. Um, the unemployment rate, interestingly, is not so much a predictor. It's one of the things that, you know, like probably like people like immediately think of that sort of like, you know, like places with less unemployment are very attractive. Um, we don't see much of an effect there, but that's largely because of the low baseline. Like unemployment is, is so low, in particular during the period that we study in Switzerland, that it's sort of like not very predictive for the patterns of migration among welfare recipients. But how Housing costs are and like the, the co-ethnic networks. And it's interesting because we were talking earlier about how there seems to be this shift in the literature from Tibu's very wide spectrum of interest to the narrow focus on the benefits. And essentially what you're saying is, yeah, that focus is too narrow. It's not just benefits that people are thinking about. Actually, they're thinking about all of the other things that everyone thinks about in their life, about what might shape their well-being. And, and, you know, all of these factors come into their decision about where they're going to locate themselves. Yeah. So like Charles Tebow was particularly like interested in understanding like this idea of like how much public goods and services you like per tax dollar, basically. Right. I think it's, it's not correct to characterize that he was like interested in sort of like lining up all the pull and push factors. Right. That also play a role. Like certainly people don't just engage in migration and purely to like public goods are not like 
It was only one of the factors that may come into a migration calculus, but of course there are other important factors. And like it was not of like I mean like Charles Thibault was not engaged into trying to sort of like enumerate all these factors. Like his his interest was in this particular question between the trade off of public goods and tax dollars, and then also like how actually municipalities react to uh, how local uh, units react to or engage into sort of competition and what it means to. Public good provision. Can we generalize from Switzerland? So you're focusing here very much on Switzerland and uh, um, movements within Switzerland. Can we generalize to movements within other countries and indeed thinking about movements between other countries as well? Right. So that's an important question. So we, we as you as you rightly point out, like we study like subnational uh, welfare migration or the movement of those on welfare in the Swiss context. We we think of this case as the most likely case to to find this type of behavior that uh, scholars that that subscribe to the to the welfare uh, magnet hypothesis that Switzerland is sort of a good case and gives us the ability to detect this type of behavior because it's sort of like the most likely uh, case. Um, so in that sense, like we think it's plausible to argue that we sort of identify an upper bound here. So if if anything, the effects we find in Switzerland, they should sort of like be an upper bound in other contexts in which the differences between the, the amount of social welfare benefits you can get are certainly like much much smaller, right? Like few countries have these huge differences locally in terms of like the benefit levels. And so in that sense, like we think of it as sort of an upper bound for subnational welfare migration. But you're right that it could be that when it comes to international migration, so when people cross national borders, that the calculus could be different for, for immigrants. And we, we certainly need more research on that. But the fact that the differences between the, the local level uh, units, the municipalities and the benefit levels, that these are so large that they come close to sort of the differences we observe across countries. It is not, you know, like too far-fetched to, to, to take this evidence as suggestive that there is probably also not, not much of this type of benefit tourism across countries. But it is something that we, we need to study more closely and where, you know, like we, we just need uh, much, much better data from governments, which is frankly often not available. And so like it's hard to to, to sort of look into this uh, in, in, in more than a few countries that happen to provide such data for research. And presumably often moving from one country to another country is just much more costly. It's much more hassle. There's much more change. So you would expect that side of the equation potentially to be much harder for cross-country migration than for what you're seeing in Switzerland, which would lead Absolutely. you to, again, expect that the effects might be smaller uh, than, you, than you're finding, I mean, even smaller than you're finding. Uh, when yeah, exactly, like even smaller than we're migration. finding, like among the small effects that we do find, like we would expect them to be even smaller. But you're absolutely right. When it comes to cross-national migration, the costs are much larger typically than within country migration, right? So in, in addition to just the pure physical relocation costs, we are also talking about like costs in terms of language learning and adjustments to, you know, like the, the new like institutional environment, etc., etc. So like, yeah, you're absolutely mm -hmm. right. The, the costs of international movement are much larger typically uh, than like subnational moves. Okay, so what should policymakers learn from this analysis? We've been talking about the methodology and the political science of this, but uh, there are important policy implications from this work as well. 
Yeah, so I think like it's interesting that you know, like when when you look at sort of like um, across Europe uh, in the last couple of years, the the welfare magnet hypothesis has really shaped policy making quite a bit. In particular, like in the context of the 2015-2016 refugee protection crisis across Europe, you really see that like uh, governments are concerned that immigrants or in that particular context, asylum seekers only come because of the welfare state. And so like many countries in, engaged in sort of this like race to the bottom uh, nationally, but then also like subnationally in order to deter immigrants from coming. So they lowered benefit levels or they tightened eligibility requirements, hoping that this is sort of like leading to leads like asylum seekers to be less likely to, to, to come and, and seek asylum in, in, in a particular country. And so... Um, this obviously, you know, like has, has huge consequences, not only for the asylum seekers uh, and for immigrants more generally, uh, but like also for everyone else on welfare. If you tighten eligibility requirements and cut welfare benefit rates across the board. Right. And so, like, I think what our paper really brings to is just take a step back and, and, and actually check to what extent we, we can actually find evidence of this type of behavior and to what extent lowering benefit levels actually deters immigrants from going somewhere or like whether it, it pushes immigrants to, to leave a certain place. And so I think much of this, you know, like of our research shows that probably not. It seems that there's very little evidence that that these types of policies have any sort of measurable effect when it comes to sort of the intent, like the intention of like deterring and and having people not moving to a particular place. Uh, but of course, it has huge consequences then for those people being affected, right? So like when you lower social benefit rates, you might push people into poverty eventually with all the consequences uh, that that then has. Does that apply in the UK as well? I'm just thinking back to the, the 2016 Brexit referendum, which we often, our conversations often go back to that. And in the run-up to that, there was a lot of talk about how the UK, because it has a non-contributory benefit system, because you get the benefits as soon as you arrive in the country, pretty much. You don't have to build up the period of working within the country before you're entitled to those benefits, that somehow the UK was uniquely attractive to uh, people who might be engaged in benefits tourism. And therefore, David Cameron at that time was... Uh, seeking to change the benefit system so that people from outside the UK could be excluded while people in the UK were still getting the same benefits as previously. And I guess, you know, that's a, a line of thinking that we have continued to see in the years since uh, the referendum. Does your evidence have implications for that kind of thinking as well? Yeah, I think it does. Uh, I mean, like, at this point, right, there is this uh, condition like when uh, like across most immigration tracks in, in the UK, there is this conditional that you don't have uh, the recourse to uh, access public funds uh, for uh, a good amount of years. It depends on which immigration track, which visa track you're on. But like for most, you're not allowed to access public funds. Right. And so there's no recourse to, to public funds or NFPF condition is largely sort of like comes comes out from exactly that type of thinking uh, that you that you just described 
But then as a consequence, what we now observe locally across the United Kingdom, in particular in England, is that we now like start seeing like this sort of parallel welfare state on the local level. So local authorities still have the responsibility to support those in need, in particular when it comes to families in, in need and, and, and people affected by serious health conditions. They still like are required by law to support uh, independent of your immigration status. And so now what happens is that you see on the local level, so local authorities like across the United Kingdom, that you know, like since they have to support these people in some way, there is now a huge variety in how the support is realized. And so you can clearly see that some local authorities are clearly, you know, like concerned that if they might provide too much support, quote unquote, that then they will see a lot of people coming to, to, to them rather than, than, you know, like hoping that they sort of can reduce the amount of people coming uh, by sort of like engaging in less support. And so like, while we don't have good data on this, it seems that sort of that there is a, a risk local authorities in in the United Kingdom, also engage into a race to the bottom, right? That they sort of like fear that they, when they provide adequate support, that this constitutes a magnet and that more and more immigrants will come. But our research clearly shows that, you know, like in the context of Switzerland, where these differences are much larger and pub, sort of like public information about these differences is much more uh, readily available, that sort of even in this context, we really don't see much of this type of behavior. Other factors like co-ethnic networks and housing codes, those are the relevant pieces, right? So I think what's important for the, for the United Kingdom here to sort of like take into account is really that because of that power welfare state on the, on the local level, it is, it is sort of like probably not a good idea not to provide the adequate support for those in need on the local level purely because of this concern that this will attract more people to come to a particular local authority or like a, like a council or a borough or something. Well, that's a very clear message for policymakers and a very good point on which we can end. Moritz, that's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Alan. We've been looking at Moritz Marbach's paper co-authored with Jeremy Ferverda and Dominic Hangartner. It's called Do Immigrants Move to Welfare? Subnational Evidence from Switzerland. It's available now in the American Journal of Political Science. And as ever, those details are in the show notes for this episode, which also include a link to the paper. Next week, in the run-up to the 25th anniversary of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland, we'll be looking at public opinion in Northern Ireland towards the past conflict and the options for the future, and at the degree to which the Brexit referendum of 2016, we've just been talking about it there and we'll be talking about it again, the degree to which that shifted the debate. Remember, to make sure you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics, all you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you use. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could take a moment of time to rate or review us. I'm Alan Rennick. This episode was researched by Alice Hart and produced by Connor Kelly and Eleanor Gingwell-Bannum. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening. <laughs>